You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont. I'm a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Now, We're actually introducing a new format. Sorry, I interrupted you. We wanted to speak at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> what a great start for an episode. <laughs> I was going to say, I noticed you didn't, usually you add a little flair to the what kind of podcast we have, but I think you may not have done it this time because this is sort of a throwback episode in a weird kind of way. <laughs> Yeah, because we thought we're just going to catch up on several different news stories and games that we've played. Every once in a while, we need those episodes where we just catch up on things that happened that flew under our radar or that we haven't picked up on because we had other kind of subjects to deal with. It's going to be one of these like mixed topic episodes today. Instead of one topic, we're going to have several smaller subjects, such as the GTA 6 leaks, the end of Google Stadia... I've also got a little bit of a glimpse into the fantastic world of European chargers. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle your seatbelts. Yes, that's going to be a particularly interesting one. Just like our conversation on video game donkey and his endeavors to become a video game publisher. And then, of course, at the end of the show, we're going to talk about several video games that we've played recently and share our impressions. Well, it's funny because there's always so much to talk about, but we don't want you to forget that we also play a lot of games. So We do that. Yeah, we want to talk about what we've been playing, and I think we've had some good experiences lately that we will share with you. Indeed, indeed. I must say I really like these times in the year when there's not too much new stuff coming out, or at least not too much high-profile stuff coming out, so that I have the time to go into my PlayStation library and just peruse and see mm, what game am I going to play today and just you know like a game always like for two or three days one of these shorter titles I really like that yeah it's like the catch-up quarter where the big companies aren't putting anything out everyone's still recovering from Elden Ring so until the last quarter of the year we've got a little time to catch up talking about catching up uh, that's what I wanted to say at the beginning we're going to introduce a new format on studying pixels it's not something super spectacular but I think a neat addition because we thought, hmm, we're over one year old now as a podcast. Ooh. We're at episode 53, I think. So we've done a whole lot of podcasting now. And we wanted to bring back some of the episodes in our backlog. Some of you might have joined us at a later point, and you might not feel like scrolling all the way back in the feed and seeing which episodes are particularly interesting. So we're going to do that for you. We're going to go through our backlog, and we're going to select each month, one of our older episode, of which we think that it holds up particularly well. So these will not be episodes that are only relevant to the time back then, but episodes that hold up well that we think they deserve another round of attention. And we're going to release them under the label Replay, Studying Pixels Replay, always on the second Wednesday of the month. And this month, October 2022, we're doing this for the very first time, and I picked naturally as it has to be. Our actual very first episode, Three Truths, Two Lies, where Dan and me play a fun little game to get to know each other a bit and to warm up for podcasting. I think it's a really fun one and that's why you're going to find that in your feed labeled Replay, Three Truths, Two Lies. Just be aware that those are recycled episodes. It's fun for us too because I think I, I usually will listen to our episode somewhere in the editing process and I maybe listen to it after it comes out just to make sure everything sounds good. And you you do forget, it's been a year and we talked about a lot of fun stuff in the past and that's actually, our first episode is one of my favorites because of that game we play. So hopefully people will enjoy it. It is super fun. And there's some things that I noticed that I just had completely forgotten about. For example, in the very first episode of Studying Pixels, our intro music was different. That's right. Yeah, we changed it later on along the way. So it is super cool for those that either joined later or those that enjoy some nostalgia and just like listening back to those subjects that we talked about a while ago. And if you don't like this, if you're not into listening to these older episodes, then just skip those episodes that are labeled as replay. Of course, you can always reach out to us and let us know which kind of episodes you would be interested in bringing back. Episodes that you liked in particular and that you think they should really be brought up to the top of the feed again. 
If you want to do that, then you can reach out by going to studyingpixels.com slash contact. Of course, though, none of this would be possible without your help because we're an independent show and we rely on your funding. If you want to help us, then you can join Studying Pixels Plus. We have some news there as well because we now have a kind of new payment scheduling implemented. This is a new patron feature. Before, just to illustrate, the problem was always that if you joined at the end of the month, then you would be charged at that particular date and then again on the first of the month. It's kind of annoying because you pay twice, sometimes in one week. And that's something that Patreon has now abolished. So now, whatever date it is that you join, you're going to be charged always on exactly that date the, in the following months. It's $5. You will get all of our episodes entirely ad-free. You'll get a nice Studying Pixels sticker. And of course, our monthly plus episodes. Some of them are deep dives into video game culture. Others actually help you study. At the moment, we have one on Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. So feel free to check that out. If you're curious, then you can go to studyingpixels.com slash plus. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And we are back talking about several news stories and interesting items that we stumbled upon throughout the week. Probably one of the biggest ones is that Google Stadia shuts down in January 2023. Mm. Rest in peace. Rest in peace, Google Stadia. Last week, the former Microsoft vice president and now general manager at Google Stadia confirmed that Stadia is going to shut down entirely. On January 18th, 2023, they will refund all of the hardware and software purchases that have been made on the Google Store and through the Stadia Store. And uh, Phil Harrison, the uh, referred to general manager at Google Stadia, commented as follows, quote, While Stadia's approach to streaming games for consumers was built on a strong technology foundation, it hasn't gained the traction with users that we expected, so we've made the difficult decision to begin winding down our Stadia streaming service. We remain deeply committed to gaming, and we will continue to invest in new tools, technologies, and platforms that power the success of developers, industry partners, cloud customers, and creators. End quote. According to a later section in this statement, according to Harrison, they are going to strive to integrate this technology in, quote, across other parts of Google, like YouTube, Google Play, and our augmented reality efforts, end quote. So yeah, it's dead. It's dead for good. And I must say, mm, I'm not going to miss it, but I am a little bit sad that it wasn't more successful because I was, at, I was a believer at the very beginning of Google Stadia, I must say. <laughs> Call me naive. I believed in it. It's a good idea, right? And I think this is the problem with anything like this, where we kind of laugh and sneer because, haha, big company failed at something that we think didn't really make a lot of sense in their implementation of it. But the sad thing is, I mean, while we live in the capitalist world of the marketplace, you know, running everything, it is good to have competition. It is good to have ideas like this, where why, sh why couldn't there be a streaming service for games, right? We see that PlayStation kind of dabbles in it a little bit, Microsoft, of course. So to build a platform strictly on streaming games, I'm not opposed to it, but I just, like with any project like this, it just seems like 
One, they didn't understand what they were doing. Two, they didn't understand the market. And three, they didn't have any follow-through with it. Because how long has Stadia been out? Like a couple years, Stefan? Yeah, I think roughly two years, maybe. Maybe three. That's nothing. So it's just, so many of these companies just, they expect booming success from the outset. And when that doesn't happen, they just shut the doors. And I understand everything is profit motivated, but it, it is a good idea to have a streaming service. It just wasn't done well in Stadia's case. I think that's a typical Google phenomenon, that they dabble in mm. a certain direction, they try it out, <laughs> sure. and they're like, nah, we're going to just shut it back down. You mean you uh, you don't follow up on your Google Plus account? My Google Plus account, yeah. I remember <laughs> that, that they wanted to basically become the new Facebook and then realized like, oh, wait, we can't do that because people just want to be on Facebook and whatever other platforms. We don't have the infrastructure <laughs> set up for that, yeah. Yeah, but the thing is that with Google Stadia, the reason why I believed in it was that they actually did have the infrastructure because Google, if there's a company on planet Earth at the moment that has the infrastructure and a sufficient understanding and control over, you know, how the how internet traffic works and flows, then certainly Google must be way up yeah, there. Right. You'd hope. And, and I was really impressed by the time that I played it. I played it a couple of times, actually. Before it came out, I tested it at uh, Gamescom a couple of years ago. And I remember that I played Doom Eternal for the very first time on Google Stadia. And it worked pretty well, actually. It was, it was pretty cool. And when Stadia came out, I didn't buy like this Stadia controller stuff. They had this like weird hardware bundles um, that was actually just like a streaming stick. It didn't have anything in particular except for a controller, but you could use any other controller as well. And I played a um, Stadia exclusive title. It was called Guilt with a Y, G-Y-L-T. And it had this Silent Hill atmosphere and it was about, you know, school bullying. So you would like... You would sneak around in a school and it would be very creepy. It was super well made. Sounds kind of cool. It, it was a really cool game. It gained absolutely no traction because it was exclusive to Stadia and nobody knew of its existence. Right. But it was actually really good. That's another thing that concerns me. And, and we've railed against the idea of streaming-only media where there's no physical counterpart. This is sort of a side, not video game-related story, but recently there's this creator. His name is Olin Rogers. He's a very funny guy. He's been on YouTube forever, and he's really interested in animation. And he had a show called Final Space, and it was pretty good, and it was it's going to be totally removed from all streaming services. He has no control over it. There's no physical release. He's basically like all this incredible amount of work that went into three seasons of a television show. It's just going to go into the ether. And so I feel terrible for people like that, like the developers of Guilt. I wonder, you know, does this game even exist for them anymore? This game that was... If it was Stadia exclusive, doesn't that mean it was streaming exclusive? What happens to those games when Stadia goes away? Yes, I'm very certain that that game is wiped off the face of the earth forevermore with the end of Google Stadia. And this also is something that I only just briefly mentioned. But yes, they're going to refund all the purchases. Because you had this problem, and this was part of the communication of Stadia from its inception. Stadia was not the Netflix of gaming. It never tried to be this thing where you get a monthly subscription and then you have access to all the games. Instead, they sold you licenses to stream games. You wouldn't own the game. You would just purchase a full price license to stream that game. And that, of course, that is tough to communicate because people just think, why can't I have just a subscription and have access to everything? They later introduced something like a mild subscription model or something, but it never really caught on. And they have this problem that now when Stadia shuts down all of these licenses, they are basically lost. So what you have to do then as a company is you have to refund everyone, everyone's purchases. If I bought, bought in quotation marks, Assassin's Creed on Stadia and Stadia shuts down, I can't play it anymore. So what am I going to do? Give me back the money. You know, and it's a problem. I guess on the one hand, it is a problem. On the other hand, I guess kudos to Google for actually doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Without any complaints, just straight right. out, straight from the get-go, we're going to refund everything. I think, you know what, that may be the silver lining of this story, is that they are now setting that precedent. Because I don't know that I've heard of any other company doing that. In my experience, if you buy something digitally, then it's sort of like, well, maybe you, you, maybe you can download it from the same account, but it's not the same as owning the physical copy. And if something were to happen to your account 
you're locked out of that. You would have to buy something again. So if we are going into this world, I guess it's a nice thing that Google actually did this because now people will look to Google, like, how did they handle it? So hopefully that's the case and we don't have to eat our words <laughs> the next time, I don't know, Yahoo does something. <laughs> <laughs> Yahoo game streaming service. Oh, I'd be very curious about that. I mean, Logitech <laughs> has produced a handheld all of a sudden. But uh, <laughs> but I'm totally on board with what you're saying, at least when it comes to something like, uh, think of the shutting down a, a video, a digital video game store, such as the PS Vita store right. or something, or the store on the PlayStation 3, I think. I'm not sure whether that's still up. Uh, I imagine As of now it is. Yeah, uh, yeah it's not going to be up forever, though. But then at least you have the situation that Sony tells people, hey, in half a year, we're going to shut down our store. You can download everything that you want to keep, and then you have it forever. So you still have this kind of option. Whereas in a streaming context, you always need that kind of particular infrastructure. It's a problem. I find it quite sad. I think that Google Stadia did have potential, but they also very quickly started to shoot themselves in the foot. They, <laughs> I remember that they, at the beginning, were quite confident that they're going to be a major player. And uh, then they started, I think at the beginning of this year, they already started to shut down their own internal development studios. Like they had high profile people on board to develop games specifically for Google Stadia. And they said like, ah, oh, no, we're not going to do that anymore. So the people left, they went to other companies. I remember Jade Raymond, for example, who was initially involved in the creation of Assassin's Creed, founded her own studio that is now funded by Sony. So that's just a way where you kind of, you lose staff and you lose confidence in the system if you have no people that exclusively develop for that platform and produce high quality content. Yeah, so it, it is, it's a shame in a number of ways. I don't know. I think we have the, we have the technology. <laughs> we have the infrastructure in place with certain companies. I think what we're missing is honestly just like, I, I don't know, more market research. I, I mean, this seems silly to say of a company like Google, but I do think it's true that it just, there wasn't a lot of um, looking ahead and it was all just assuming that people would be on board. And I don't think you can do that these days. Maybe Netflix will become the Netflix of gaming. Maybe. <laughs> They've got the name already. <laughs> They've got the name. They got, they got games already, but also Netflix, the way they handle games. They, yes, they do have a game section. It's kind of like mobile games. Uh, but if they wanted to take a proper stab at it, and I think sooner or later they will try then it needs to be more firmly integrated into this entire Netflix experience of browsing through movies. You need to automatically have like, you know, big, well-renowned games pop up at the top and being like, hey, this is your streaming thing. I think that would totally be a possibility that Netflix goes into that direction, especially seeing how they've got a lot of competition in the streaming market with Disney+, Plus, Apple TV+, Plus, HBO Max, and so on and so forth. Might be a good way to differentiate themselves further. What else do we have? Number two. Well, do we number, number two? Well, I, sure. Okay, <laughs> let's the number one we're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Number, <laughs> two. <laughs> number two. Number <laughs> two. It's it's free and easy, Stefan. We're going wherever the wind takes us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so a video game donkey in the news and all over Twitter. It's kind of calmed down now at this point, but boy. I, what did he do this time? <laughs> what did he do this time? So I know he had gotten in some hot water a couple weeks ago for having a not-so-favorable opinion on Xenoblade Chronicles 3. Oh, um, if I may briefly interrupt, did you see that video on Xenoblade Chronicles? The donkey video? The donkey video, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm, because I, I must say, I love video game donkey. The, this, the YouTube channel, it's yeah, hilarious. It's We're both fantastic. big fans. <laughs> I remember yeah. the, the first video that I've ever seen of him where he's playing like Skyrim with like severely modded, uh, <laughs> severely modded version. He's like, I'm going to create a Sonic and so on. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> he's hilarious. He is, but yeah. I, I must say that Xenoblade Chronicles video didn't sit all too well with me either, because while I found it funny, it's kind of annoying that he just, he, he spoils the game, basically. He gradually just goes through the entire game, and yeah. you think at some point it's going to cut away, or there's going to be some kind of evaluative thing that comes in instead. But he just basically spoils the entire game. Yeah, and I don't think there's like a spoiler warning, and uh, he's, why? he's notoriously his tastes he does not like jrpgs and so he it's kind of become a joke and i think what happened with that game is that if i can try to probe into the mind of video game donkey for a minute <laughs> i think what he did was 
he understood that there was going to be backlash because he knows that he's not going to like the game. So he knows he's going to have maybe a not so favorable opinion of it. So he's kind of leaning into the skit a little bit and mocking people more than he usually would because he he has gotten a ton of backlash for JRPG opinions that he's had. So I think that's what he did. And the problem was, I think it shot past satire and it just became genuine to a lot of people, mm. <laughs> which is which is the issue with comedy in general. You kind of have to find the balance, but... I think generally speaking, I do appreciate his opinions. He has yeah. a great video on video game critics where he kind of outlines his philosophy on what a good critic is. And he says, just because you disagree with a critic doesn't mean that they're a bad critic. It means that you know what you're going to get from that person. And so I think he's very knowledgeable about video games. And all of this, all of his experience with games, his talking to developers at various conventions like PAX, his experience playing every game on the planet, he's decided with his wife, Leah, to make a publishing company called Big Mode. And it seems pretty cool, honestly, because it's basically Dunkey opening up his purse strings and saying, I love video games. I see so many games that don't get the attention they deserve. I want to give them that attention. I want to give them that money. I'm not going to, he's, he claims in the video, he's not going to influence development at all. He just wants to sort of be the benefactor to give money to these people so that their games can get out. It has a specific focus on indie titles, people who probably wouldn't get attention from bigger publishing studios. And he got a whole lot of backlash for this. And I don't know, did you see any of it, Stefan, on Twitter? I have actually never heard of this, even though I follow his videos semi-regularly and totally agree with you that he's super witty and uh, very smart and very inspiring in many ways as well for me as a, someone who has made YouTube videos in the past. But I haven't seen or heard any of this, probably because I don't log in on Twitter that much anymore for that <laughs> very reason. <laughs> probably, probably smart, yeah. <laughs> but why the backlash? I mean, it sounds like a good idea. It, intuitively, it sounds like something that might just be a nice thing to do. Yeah, I think, I think the backlash came out because the video that he put out, I mean, he's a big personality, and I felt that the video he put out announcing this was coming from a very sincere place, but he basically made the implicit argument that he knows what's good because he plays a lot of video games. And I think anyone in the video game development sphere who makes games for a living, whether for artistic purposes or commercial purposes, I think they bristle at that because to hear like an armchair critic basically say, I know what makes these things good without having any experience making them. I think they say, well, who made you the arbiter of what's good and what isn't? You know, you don't have the power to make these decisions. And I think they were kind of arguing with an argument that wasn't there <laughs> in the first place because Dunkey didn't say, I'm going to make a development studio where I'm going to make video games and I know what's best for video games because I play a ton of them. He literally couched this entire announcement in, I love indie titles. They don't get the, the uh, um, attention that I think they deserve. I want to open up my YouTube wallet <laughs> to people so that I can play some of their fun games. I also think it would be a little bit deluded to assume that when you, like if you make a video game and if you, if you try to pitch that video game to publishers, then it, it might be a little bit deluded to assume that you're speaking to people who also make video games themselves. Because actually, you're speaking to people who are representatives of, of a publishing company. Uh, you're not speaking to people who also code. It might be that they do, perchance, yes, but that's not their primary qualification. The primary qualification of someone who, for example, assesses whether they want to take on financing for a game at, uh, let's say, Devolver Digital or Annapurna Interactive. Let's take one of these like very beloved publishers, rightfully so, beloved publishers. Yeah. Uh, they would assess this game from a basically from a player's perspective. And from the perspective of market research and assess whether this is something that holds financial potential for them and whether it deserves to be funded, I think that's the realistic assessment, isn't it? I totally agree. And I think that, I mean, publishing is as much marketing as anything. And so, I mean, I just look at it and I see, here's all the pros that I think about. He's got a massive audience. We're talking millions of people on YouTube. He's very popular. He has been for over a decade. He's trusted 
with video game opinions. I don't know about you, but I will always, if, if I'm playing a game, I'll wait to see his video until after I've played it so that I can see like, okay, I'm curious about his opinion here, right? What he noticed that maybe I didn't. So I think there's a lot of merit to that. The cons, I think where developers are right to be kind of skeptical is one, yes, he plays a million games, but they're all finished. <laughs> and it's very different to grade a finished product compared to an alpha or a beta build of something. So you may see the alpha build of something and think, wow, I bet that's going to be great. I'm going to fund it. And then it turns into something completely different by the time it's finished. So that's a concern. And then I think the other concern is we don't know a lot about this company. And all they're saying is that they're going to make good with the developers. And I think people in the video game industry hear these kind of platitudes and get very concerned. Like, oh, you think that, okay, you're going to take care of us. You're going to write contracts that benefit us. Yeah, we've heard all this before, but until we see something in writing, we're not going to believe it, which I think is reasonable. Yeah. Don't buy the cat in the bag. Right, yeah. It yeah. doesn't mean that this is going to be a major thing. It is also a total possibility that Video Game Donkey completely fails. That's always a possibility. Not that I wish him that. I think um, mm -mm. I, I wish this endeavor all the best because I see great potential in someone who is indeed well-versed in the domain of video games. Maybe potentially just, first of all, being open to be approached by smaller developers who are looking for funding because tiny developer studios, they go around all the time knocking on the doors of publishers being like, hey, we've got this great idea. We've got this small vertical slice prototype maybe. Uh, we've got here these drawings, these concept arts that we've made. Would you please give us some funding? And I assume you're being rejected and rejected over and over again. Hundreds of times. And if a good idea yeah. lands in the hands of this big mode publisher then and gets funding and it turns out to be cool, then that is that is just great. I think I see Video Game Donkey in a very similar vein to how I see Jim Stephanie Sterling as a, a very distinguished critic of video games, someone who knows a whole lot. And bringing that kind of knowledge to the table in funding video games, I think it's it's totally fine. I don't I don't see why it should be a, a problem at all. No, I, I don't. And I think my my I totally agree. I think that in a way also, people like Donkey or Jim Stephanie Sterling who have railed against people who are people like your Eve Eve what is it, Eve Gamo yeah, at Eve Ubisoft. Gimmo. Mm. You know, people like Bobby Kotick who we've who we've talked about. Like when you've railed against someone like that and you have a giant audience like sterling or donkey does i think you have a built-in level of accountability where they i think donkey is aware of the endeavor he's undertaking here and i think that he's put a lot of thought into it he did mention that this was a few years in the making yeah so it's not like he did this overnight there's a lot it, there seems to be a lot of background to this so i agree with you i think if he succeeds we all succeed we get to play some fun weird games that might not have been made otherwise and if he fails then I still think it's a really, it's a cool way for a YouTuber to use his influence to help people who make games. So uh, Godspeed, Donkey. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll see how it goes. Ah, you know what? We'll start a publishing studio as well. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Pixel Coon Publishing. Pixel Coon Publishing. <laughs> ah, that, that would be great, honestly. I would, would love to great. do that. I would love to say, uh, I'll go around and you know, like show me your video game prototypes and I'm like, nah. <laughs> okay, this is, this is my favorite Beatles-related story. So when Monty Python, they wrote a script for The Life of Brian, their movie about the, the guy who gets mistaken for the Messiah, right? And they couldn't get funding anywhere. No one would fund it. They needed about $2 million. And one day, George Harrison of the Beatles calls up Eric Idle and he says, I've put the money up. And Eric <laughs> Idle says, what? He says, I've put the money up. He says, why? Why are you, you're funding it $2 million? He says, yeah, yeah. Why? He says, I want to see the movie. <laughs> so, <you> know, <laughs> hey, Donkey, it's, you're in good company with George Harrison. I want to play the game. Let me give you the money. Exactly. Godspeed. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a brief break and then we're going to be back talking about the GTA 6 leaks. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And we are back talking about GTA 6. What a video game Probably one of the most anticipated video games of all time. Just like every single Rockstar game has always been the most anticipated video game of all time. So is there a chance that that man who uh, hijacked German television and asked, when is GTA 6 coming out? It, was, he, was he in any way involved in this? All right, there was this incident. <laughs> I remember we spoke about it on the show. Yes, yes. It's one of my favorite stories. He, he what, just ran, maybe I'm inflating it in my memory, but he just ran on stage and yes. said, where's GTA 6? And the producer said, I don't know. <laughs> yes, exactly. That was in a, at a German game show where an audience member, he ran on stage and he demanded to know when GTA 6 comes out. And they were just like, <laughs> How would I know? How would I know? I'm, yeah. I'm hosting this. This show was not related to video games at all. <laughs> <laughs> completely random. <laughs> oh, somewhere that man has had his day. But I think it's very much indicative of how high the level of anticipation is with GTA. Uh, because the thing is that Rockstar Games, they really take their jolly sweet time in developing video games. And I think that's perfectly cool. There are many video games out there in the world. You know, I will probably hear the news when GTA 6 comes out. You know, just let me know when it's out. And then I'll most likely play it because I love GTA. I'm very chill in that regard. Yeah, and it's it's totally a foregone conclusion that it will make a bazillion dollars. So it's not like they need to speed anything up unnecessarily. Yeah, that's the kind of confidence that a publisher or a developing company such as Rockstar Games can have. They know that whatever they do with GTA 6, it's going to be major. Either it's going to be majorly successful or majorly controversial or both. But <laughs> probably uh, they're going to have a huge hit on their hands because they are very experienced with open world action games. And they also know that every single piece of information that they give out causes a media ruckus. It's like crazy. It's all over the place. Whenever you, you see a screenshot... I remember with GTA 5, it was the case. You see a new screenshot and they would, like, people would go crazy all over the internet. Well, yeah, okay. I mean, that's all well and good. Considering how high this threshold of anticipation is, and it's quite impressive that considering this intense anticipation, the hunger of people for new information, that Rockstar Games usually does quite a good job of keeping things under control. They don't usually have leaks. Now, this drastically changed on September 18th last month. It was one of the biggest leaks in video game history where a user going by the name of Teapot Uber Hacker went to gtaforums.com and he posted, this is the original post, quote, Hi, 
Here are 90 footage slash clips from GTA 6. It's possible I could leak more data soon. GTA 5 and 6 source code and assets. GTA 6 testing build. Full stop. End quote. That was all there was. And a link to a whole batch of videos. And there was some... <laughs> I've, I looked at this forum because there obviously there's dozens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people claiming to have GTA 6 leaks. So there was an incredible amount of skepticism on the forum that this was posted in. But lo and behold, no, they were real. They, they were actually uh, stolen footage from a very, very early build of GTA 6. And Correct. yeah, it just, it blew up. Because this, this doesn't happen with Rockstar. They are so lock and key with everything. And this was huge story, huge. Yeah, it was. It confirmed some of the suspicions or the rumors that had been circulating before, such as GTA 6 having two protagonists and one of them being uh, actually a, a female Latina, maybe? I, can I say that? Or do you just say Latina and it already includes the fact that it's a female person? Yeah, yeah, Latina. Yeah. I think and, I, uh, yeah. I'm not an expert, but I, I believe so. <laughs> <laughs> well, the videos, they quickly spread all over the internet. And um, the forum, they took down that post, but obviously people had already downloaded videos. They uploaded them elsewhere on Reddit, for example, where they were also removed, presumably at the behest of individuals that actually work at Rockstar Games. And soon thereafter, Rockstar Games confirmed the leak. The next day, they posted on Twitter and said, quote, that due to a network intrusion, an unauthorized third party illegally accessed and downloaded confidential information from our systems, end quote. And they expressed their disappointment, but at the same time, they also said, quote, at this time, we do not anticipate any disruption to our live game services, nor any long-term effect on the development of our ongoing projects, end quote. I think that's an important message that they put out there because this isn't like um, back in the day with the Sony hack where so many PSN profiles were hacked into and people's credit cards were at risk. You forget, maybe, if you don't play it often, that there's so much money being made on GTA Five online and everybody has all their information up there. So a breach like this is a potential gigantic security problem. And I think it's good that they said as much. Although I, if I had my credit card on a GTA 5 server, I would still be pretty scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, luckily none of the personal information has been stolen, apparently. It was strictly focused on game assets and the source code, though actually I'm not quite sure what it would mean for a source code of a video game to be leaked. I'm fairly certain that it happened in the past, I think, where Half-Life 2 or something, Half-Life 2 source code had been... Oh, yeah. Um, that had been leaked, and it happened several times, never with a GTA game. I'm pretty certain that if you were to leak the GTA 6 source code, that probably with a lot of time you could garner some things from that, some information. But I can't imagine that that would mean that you could basically make your own GTA 6 game out of that, because the source code is basically, that's that's the code infrastructure, the code infrastructure, but it still lacks a whole lot of information, such as, you know, music and visuals and all kinds of aspects that the code ties together. Right. I think the it would be more for data mining. Like, I know that there's a, there's a big community out there that does look at source code of video games so they can see things that maybe weren't, they were developed early on, but they weren't put into the final product or, you know, they find interesting shortcuts or glitches or things like that. But, but the thing about that is that that really doesn't matter at this stage because GTA 6 is so, so early in development. I can't imagine there's going to be anything in there. I mean, why would you even... Why would you be looking at it? You're, you're, like you said, you're not going to build GTA 6 and you're not going to be able to find anything interesting. I, I just don't think there's anything in there. Yeah, I'm not sure how high the interest actually is. I'm sure there is yeah. a niche community that would go through such a source code in great detail. But on the other hand, I mean, I don't know how these things work in detail, but I can't imagine that there's some kind of magical formula in the GTA 6 source code <laughs> that the world of video game programming is not already well familiar with as yeah, to right. how these th systems interact and how you code such such programs like an aiming system for a weapon or such things 
might be that I'm wrong, but that's at least my amateur assessment. Well, I'm I'm going to amateurly agree with you because I, <laughs> I have so many games are it's it's not like the early days where people would come up with like brand new mechanics that would truly change games. I mean, GTA six is gonna be very much like GTA five, just with different content in it. Yeah, structurally probably very similar. The more interesting part is probably how exactly the hacker managed to get in, because as you said, Rockstar Games is quite a tightly closed tin, and it's hard to penetrate. So this hacker, he or she or they have the username Teapot Uber Hacker. So that is an implicit claim that they were also involved in the Uber hack, which took place a couple of weeks prior, and that was already investigated. So the FBI quickly assumed uh, that this hacker group called Lapsus was involved. This is a hacker group that I coincidentally have encountered and heard of before. Uh, They're mostly uh, teenagers, minors, who are very bluntly attacking uh, major companies. And usually, and this is something that I find really fascinating about hacking, not so much by, you know, having this typical idea of the hacker who sits at his computer and has like this matrix-style numbers flowing across (laughs) the screen, but they do social engineering. So they would, presumably, this particular person has gotten onto the Rockstar Games Slack channel. That might have been one possibility. And I don't know at which point they found a vulnerability in their structure, but social engineering really means that You're trying to fabricate emails or something. You're trying to get people on the phone to believe that you might be a Rockstar employee or something along those lines to wiggle your way in. And once you're in, to quickly snatch everything that you can can get. And apparently that was these uh, 90, 90 videos of early GTA 6 footage. He's also been caught, by the way. He's been caught. A 17 year old teenager has been arrested in London. And he pleads not guilty to the charges of hacking into the Rockstar Games system. But we'll have to see what comes of the investigation. The FBI is investigating and the UK police department is investigating as well. I'm sure we're going to see results soon. And I would be very surprised if that would not been the dude that they arrested. Because it seems that the investigators at least are very certain that that is the person. And in fairness, it seems like he's taking credit for it too. Yeah, this is a typical move apparently for this lapsus group of hacking into systems, snatching something, and then basically holding it up like a trophy. At the same time, though, being relatively reckless about covering their tracks Mm. and relatively easy to identify. So it seems that, I mean, the investigation is ongoing and we shouldn't be presumptuous about it, but um, it seems that they're pretty far advanced in their investigation. The other part of this story that I would like to touch on is how it kind of connects to the donkey story a little bit in that people don't know what they're talking about (laughs) because the amount of reaction to the leaks, the actual leaks themselves saying, well, this game looks like crap. Like this looks awful. It it looks unfinished. Yeah. People say that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is unfinished though. (laughs) It is unfinished. Yeah. (laughs) So, but there's, you can, you can look it up, like all these people sincerely thinking like, why does it look so awful? It's like, well, cause it's not done yet. And that's, and that's the, the problem with these leaks too, is that you're not, uh, you're not really getting what you think you're getting. Uh, you're, you're just seeing someone's like half finished homework basically. Yeah. That's why I'm so apprehensive about these leaks. I get the curiosity and I've, of course, as part of researching the story, I've searched for those videos. I couldn't find them directly because they've been removed basically wherever they posted they're very quickly thereafter removed from the servers at the same time i saw some brief glimpses and it looked completely unspectacular it's a a work in progress build of a game that very much looks like a gta like it could become a gta one day right and and that's all there is for the time being and i feel a little bit annoyed about how how excited people are about this, getting a, an early glimpse at such a thing. Because I, it's not necessarily specifically about Rockstar Games, but just from the perspective of someone who creates things, because we are doing a podcast, I'm also, I like to produce music and stuff like that. I'll show it to people once it's ready, you know? Right. We, we, we wouldn't, like if you would hack into our servers 
and you would manage to get the raw files of our podcast, then you would get something that's just not as refined <laughs> and it's not ready. Yeah. It's like you can listen to it if you want to. It's nothing, there's nothing spectacular there. It's just not as good as when it's edited and mixed, you know? And I think I totally agree. And I think it's more interesting to see this kind of thing when the finished product exists, because then you can see almost from an educational standpoint, how something gets made or what they do to kind of get it to the point where it's finished. There was a really cool tweet from Santa Monica Studios that was showing what God of War, the remake, looked like before they put all the finishing touches on it. So this was very, very late in development. Really, all that was left, they do graphics last, right? Or it's very much at the tail end of things. So like you said, it resembled God of War, but it was all these gray shapes and blocks that you couldn't really put any form or function to. That's just how games look until they're finished. That's certain game studios have a very particular assembly line of what they do at what time. So if you catch them at 30% of the way done, you're not going to see the game that you're expecting. (laughs) Yeah. I actually found that quite charming, though, that a couple of developer studios, high-profile developer studios, uh, stepped onto the stage and said, like, hey, look, here's a glimpse at what our game, in this case, I saw Control, a really high-profile game that's much praised for its visuals, for its aesthetics, for its uh, tight gameplay, and just published an unfinished glimpse and just said, this, by the way, this is how it looked before it was done, so that people would temper their expectations a little bit and like, hey, this is just how games look at this early stage in development. So please... You know, calm your horses. Reserve your judgment. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe be a little bit more chill about this. Rockstar Games is going to let you know when they are ready showing their game. And then you can decide whether you want to play it or not. Number four. Four? Yes. This should be number (laughs) four. With a question mark? I forgot to count. I forgot the counting. (laughs) I like that, though. Number four. (laughs) Number four is about the EU. EU votes to adopt single charging cable for portable games, consoles, tablets, and phones. Written by Tom Phillips on Eurogamer.net. Now, I'm very, I'm fairly certain that this decision has been made a couple of months ago. I've read this before, but everyone's reporting on it right now. So I think that it might have been kind of foreseeable a couple of months ago. And now they have actually implemented the decision. Now it's set in democratic stone. <laughs> which is that from 2024 onwards, USB-C will become the new standard for charges in the entire EU. Because we've got the situation now that we've got several different charges. And when you're at home and you want to charge a device, then you need to run around. You have three different charges in three different drawers. <laughs> and you need to find them all. This pertains to video games because it includes, of course, things like phones and tablets, but also portable game consoles. The Nintendo Switch, of course, and the Steam Deck, they already use USB-C, but this includes everything that comes in the future as well. And including all kinds of peripherals, such as uh, mice, keyboards, headphones, which I'm going to be very happy about. All of it will have a USB-C connector, and in 2026... They're also including laptops in this equation. I think that's great. I, <laughs> this seems like such a small thing, but it's not. Because as you were describing running to different drawers, I was thinking about my bedside table that has three different USB ports, all for different USB devices. Yeah. And it would be cool. I, one of the things that I really like about my Mac is that the charging block is very versatile for all the stuff that I need to charge. So... I think it's inevitable and it seems like very bureaucratic, but it's exciting in a way because it's just another another step in the streamlining process. <laughs> yeah, it's when the market does not regulate itself right. automatically. You know, when the market uh, comes to the, uh, well, capital from a capitalistic point, meaningful conclusion, we should all have our own individual charges because then we can sell charges over and over to customers. Then governments and regulatory institutions such as the EU have to step in and say, hey, 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 this is not only annoying for customers, but it's also bad for the environment because then every single device needs to come with its own charger. Whereas if you say we're going to unify it all across the EU, and unfortunately this excludes the UK now, (laughs) if you say we're going to unify it, then that means you purchase maybe two or three of these USB chargers and you use it 
for all of your devices. You don't need any new ones unless something breaks or some kind of new USB rendition comes out in the future. So I think that's a fantastic regulation. I'm really looking forward to getting rid of all of these. Also like Apple with their lightning cable, you know? It's, come on, lightning cable still? They're still doing yeah. this. Like they're selling you, I've got at the moment AirPods Max on my head, 600 euro studio, high quality studio headphones. They have a lightning cable. <laughs> and it's just like, that's over. That's over and done yeah. with 2024. Apple needs to give everyone in the EU a USB-C port. And that will probably mean that they might unify it internationally anyway. If they have to do it for the relatively strong and big entire European market, they might also do that for the US and other markets. I hope so. Because I think that would be what it would take in the States for something like that to happen. Because I they would never regulate it governmentally it would just be apple is doing this so everyone else is following suit <laughs> yeah probably because apple is also one of the strongest companies that holds on to their proprietary charges so i think it's time it's time to put them in line and then everyone else will probably follow suit just loving the picture of a, a congress at the european union with with one person from like i don't know belgium just with 15 cables in his hands going this must stop <laughs> this must stop <laughs> <laughs> in the future it's going to be like you're going to see someone from the UK <laughs> with all their 15 charges being <laughs> what have we done <laughs> I don't know what you mean <laughs> we charge in ounces here <laughs> well what else have we got number five we're going to talk about yeah. some video games we've been playing right yeah I've been playing a good amount actually I've been um, so as an update for you listening, I've been steadfastly building up my platinum collection on a platinum trophy profile that I have. And so I've been going through some old games, but I've also been playing some new ones. One of them was Infernax. I think you mentioned this before, but I don't think it's something... It's not well known, is it? No, I don't think so. It's by Berserk Studios. Um, and I actually met two of the guys from Berserk at PAX West and played Infernax on, they had a, it was great. It was a, they just had a couch set up on the floor. And so you could sit there and play the game. That's most charming. Yeah, it, it really drew me in. And the game is very, very simple. It's a kind of throwback game to Castlevania. It's got some Metroid influence to it, but it's very much kind of a, I guess, gothic horror, kind of Dark Souls influenced sort of scary monster game where you play as someone, a duke who's come back from, the Crusades, and he comes back to his home to find that demons and monsters have overrun it. So, very simple story. Go and, you know, beat all the demons and save the world. But there are some branching pathways. You can either become good and expel all the demons from your world, or you can lead into it and become sort of demonic yourself. And what I found really charming about it was there are so many references to games. It reminded me of Shovel Knight in the sense that it it really paid homage to the games it was referencing. So there's different modes of play. There are cheat codes. There's, uh, you can enter the Konami code to become like a Contra character <laughs> and just tear through zombies with a machine gun. Lots of really fun stuff. And you can tell that the folks at Berserk have a really distinct sense of humor that is kind of, kind of gallows humor and it fits perfectly in the dark tone of the game. So really quick play. Um, I, I platinumed it in probably like 10 or 12 hours altogether. That's a decent length. Yeah, and, and it's really, it's a, but that's because I played, there's about six different ways you can end it. And oh. um, if you just play it through normally, it would probably take you about three, four hours. So really quick, really fun. And I'll probably go back to it, even though I completed it, because it was just, it was that fun. I've got it on the Switch as well. I wanted to support them, and it's a go-to airplane game now. <laughs> so all-around all good stuff. Really enjoyed it. I did a similar thing, which would be number six now, I suppose. I played through Gree by uh, Nomada Studio. That was released in 2018 already, and it was on my radar for quite a while. Uh, it's a game that's about a young lady who goes through, I'm going to say, loss and grief. At least that's the theme of the game. It's very quiet. It's very colorful. You're basically restoring color to the world, a 2D platforming game where you solve small puzzles. And I played that in one evening, in one sitting, because I had the exact same 
moment that you had where I was just thinking, hmm, okay, uh, now, some, I need something something refreshing, something short after playing through the entirety of Persona 5 Strikers, something that won't consume my entire life for the next month. And then I saw it on Apple Arcade. It's actually, it's available on Apple Arcade at no additional cost, and so I just clicked download, it was downloaded in 30 seconds, started playing it, three hours later the credits rolled, and a tear down my cheek. Oh, beautiful. Ah. It was, uh, it was a really beautiful experience, yeah. Very quiet, very subtle, and just charming all around. Totally recommendable video game. Sometimes I struggle playing games that everyone recommends because I feel like, yeah, everyone's recommending that. I'm not going to play that then, you know? I have the same, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the same, how dare you tell me what I like. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. but, but then it's like years down the line. Like this came out in 2018. Years later, I'm like, oh yeah, I should play that. And I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. I should have played this a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's nice. It's it's nice to have those short palate cleanser games after your... Because often we play games that are 80 plus hours. So to have something that you can just go through in one sitting is really refreshing. Yeah, it's like the, you know, like a tiny mint or a little uh, chocolate <laughs> that they give you in the restaurant. I, I was at a fancy restaurant recently and they gave you like a piece of chocolate at the end. And you're like, oh, thank you. That's exactly what I wanted now. The the digestif of the yes. video game world. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Number Seven? Oh my god, how many do we have? I only have one more, so... Okay. I, I, <laughs> me, me too, so we've got eight in total. Number seven. Perfect. So, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure All-Star Battle R. So, I am a huge JoJo's Bizarre Adventure fan. It's, a, I think, a masterpiece in storytelling, and it's a great manga series, a great anime series. The final part of the sixth uh, entry, Stone Ocean, was actually just announced for December 1st. So it's going to be wrapping up, which is great. So really great story. I'm not going to go into what it's about because I don't want to take up six hours of our time. But <laughs> what, I, what I will say is that in a nutshell, it is a ancestral family drama that introduces different kinds of incredible powers that the the joe stars the jojos that they all have and that they use to fight various different evildoers so all-star battle r is a remake of a fighting game called all-star battle that came out for the ps3 in 2013 i believe which is right around when the anime series was kind of taking off and they remade it they made it they polished it beautifully um they added a few characters but it's a fighting game. It's nothing crazy. There's no real story to it. It's basically just one of my favorite setups for a game like this is that it's the all-star battle mode is just different characters that you would want to see from different parts matched up. So it's sort of like, oh, this person from the first part is meeting this person from the sixth part. And realistically, there's 150 years between them. So how would they interact? What would they say to one another? By battering each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> yeah. But that's really charming. And, you know, there's scenarios that you can set up where Dio Brando, the main villain, he was in the first part in the 1880s, meets himself 100 years later from the 1980s, and they have banter. So it's things like that that you can set up. And it's not a very complicated fighting game. And I'm not a big fighting game person. I don't, I, I'm very poor at them, I think. But I, I did get the platinum on this one. I enjoyed it so much. And I think what I love about anime games in general is that bad ones, I think, are just banking on you recognizing that this is the show that you like, and they don't put anything interesting into it. Good ones, good anime adaptations in video games are wish fulfillment, where you get to see things that you wouldn't see in the anime, or you get to play out what ifs. It's not just with JoJo. I think the good Dragon Ball games do this too, where you get to see from an outsider's perspective, you get to kind of manipulate events to see what would happen if you did this. I always get a lot of enjoyment out of that. And so this was a lot of fun for that reason. So if you're a JoJo fan, I'd recommend it. If not, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. If not, why are you listening to this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm actually not. I've never seen JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, but I know I have to at some point because this is like a super popular series, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's um, one of my favorite things about it is that everyone I've ever showed it to has the same moment, which I love because it's a very ridiculous premise. The show's very over the top. It's very ridiculous. But there's one moment that gets everyone 
where I can see watching them, I can see their face, and I see the turn of, when did I start caring about this in their head? Because it hits them so hard, and I, I love it for that. So yeah, definitely recommend it. Uh, there's some animes that are just stunningly good at this. I remember watching Madoka Magica. Oh, that one's nuts. Yeah. Yes. I know I know really... the moment you're going to be talking yes, about. Yes, <laughs> exactly. about. Yeah. I'm not going to mention the moment, but it's exactly one of these animes where you start watching it and it's like so silly and so over the top and cutesy and so on. And then at a certain point, then it, it takes a turn and you're just like, whoa, okay, I hadn't realized that I actually yeah. really cared about what's happening in this show, but suddenly it does, you know? Just deep investment, like in an instant. It's so yes. great. Yep. Yes. Well, I unfortunately cannot yet talk about the game that I'm currently playing. Um, we're going to possibly do an entire review episode on it next week. Instead, I'm going to briefly mention that number eight, I've played Layers of Fear. And that is the original Layers of Fear from Bloober Team, released in 2018. And it's also one of these games that have been recommended to me for so long that I always thought like, ah, I don't need to play it anymore. I've read so many analyses of Layers of you Fear. You basically played it, yeah. I basically know what it is. And then right. I thought, well, you know, I've coincidentally, I have it in my library anyway, because apparently nowadays you've got something like PlayStation Plus. You're just like, oh my God, all of these games, and I don't even have the time to play all of them. And then I found Layers of Fear. And it's a really interesting one. It's a, a first-person horror game about, I have to be careful not to say too much, because it's very it gradually reveals its story but the setup is that you are basically a painter very 19th century gothic style and uh, you have kind of fallen from grace and you're an alcoholic a severe alcoholic things happen to your wife to your child and you're not doing all too well and you're desperate so desperate to finish your last masterpiece and uh, that's basically the starting point of the game, where you then explore the old house, where you're overcome by memories, and where layers of fear starts to play with, with your sense of orientation. They constantly do such things like you walk into a room, and then seemingly you walk into a roadblock, and, and then you turn around and the room is completely different. And these things to disorient you and to make sure that you never think that this is actually the real house that you're navigating, but you're navigating an externalized manifestation of the protagonist's uh, guilt, trauma, regrets, and his intoxicated perception of the events that took place. I played it, I remember when it came out, and just your description makes me want to play it again. Especially because the, what, what did we decide it was? A remake, Quill? <laughs> the, the new one that's coming out? Yeah, Layers of Fear 2, you mean? Yes, yeah. So I, I, I have to peel the curtain back a little bit here and reveal just a, just a, minute of off mic conversation because i said it's pretty spooky isn't it and you said uh, I, I don't remember what did i say <laughs> you said it's, it's, it's a, aggressively terrifying yes aggressively <laughs> terrifying exactly and it is the thing is what i find so fascinating about layers of fear is that i mean first of all it's a game with a relatively low production quality in some regards like i, I didn't find it to be particularly polished and that's okay it's a very small studio blooper team that had their big success, their big breakthrough with Layers of Fear, so the subsequent title is probably a lot more polished. The original wasn't. You have this like annoying thing, you know, when you, you want to open a drawer, and then you have to hold down the shoulder button, a trigger button, and then you have to move the stick back. But then at the same time, you also move the view, the, the reticule, also out of the way, and then you have to look back up, and so on. It's like a little bit dizzying <laughs> it's, it's to make you feel <laughs> drunk is what it is <laughs> they do achieve that effect very well yeah. they are it, it's completely not subtle layers of fear but it's also not dumb i found that a very interesting balance that it works just as an example it's not subtle because it throws things directly in your face quite a bit you encounter your wife and it's like bah, you know jump scare classic jump scare, <laughs> oh, my wife yeah. <laughs> and it's like oh god my wife <laughs> but at the same time they do such things for example that the protagonist is limping all the time throughout the entire game you can always tell that he's limping with one leg and it's gradually revealed uh, this is not a big story spoiler that's why i'm telling you this that there has been something happened to his leg and he's wearing a prosthesis and that prosthesis is a little bit too short. So it's just like a very tiny thing that they implemented, this limp. 
that reminds you all the time of like, oh, I'm actually an old drunk painter, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's very effective. And I think there's a whole genre of horror games that I would label as not subtle, but not dumb. Yes. I Yeah, and they're some of my favorites. So yeah, I, I, I want to go back and play it again. It's, it is the spooky month after all, so it's time for that. It's a spooky month, and it's also not super long. I played it in two evenings, and it's totally doable. There is then another DLC, Layers of Fear Inheritance, that you can also uh, enjoy, and of course, Layers of Fear 2. But before we get completely off track, we're going to close off this episode by thanking you very, very much for listening to our elaborations on all kinds of news stories and our own video game impressions. If you want to contribute, then you can always submit your thoughts and questions to studyingpixels.com contact. And if you want to support us and help us make this show happen, then please go to studyingpixels.com plus and sign up for Studying Pixels Plus. And then we're going to have a chat again next week. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.